Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. to Keys to the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to talk about Christianity, and we're going to talk about specifically religion. We're doing a series. We're about in the 11th section of that series, and we're revealing a great deal of stuff that people thought they knew about and are finding out that they didn't know as much about it as they thought, (laughs) that they believed. And in the last session, we talked about this idea of religion and how lexicographers have changed the definition of the word religion. Now, we don't want to really just blame them or the tyrants of the world that might be doing this, but are behind this kind of advantage that comes when you change the definition of words. Because the responsibility really lies with us. We allow the word to be changed in our own minds. And this is something that repeats itself over and over again in history. And those of you who have read the book, Thy Kingdom Come, see that this idea of the altars, altars of stones, a gathering of stones was a gathering of friends, men you trusted, and they had a particular job. And they fit together without being hewn, without being regulated. And when you gave your sacrifice on those living altars, you gave them for a purpose. And you gave them up entirely. They were burnt up to you. And then this was a way in which society bound itself together by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. So that society would remain free. Now you wouldn't know that with the modern interpretation of the Old Testament that have twisted the meaning of words. Yet the words are still there. And one of the beautiful things about Hebrew language is that the words are based on letters put together, much as the ideograms of Chinese and Japanese, so that the letters themselves have meaning in the words. And when you once you understand the meaning of those letters, and you can think left brain, right brain, You can go back and read the original language and you say, well, this word has to do with this, or this word has to do with that. And these are concepts, and the order of the uh, letters in the word tell you something about what the author is trying to say. And so when men come along and try to twist those words to mean something else, and often, you know, they're not always twisting them to mean something else, In the Hebrew language, they would always have a metaphorical meaning to a word as well as a substantive meaning to a word, such as reins, the the reins of control of something. To be able to control something was the same word for kidney. Kidney was associated with reins of control. And, And the same word for liver is the same word for to fatten or enrich. And of course, if your liver is unhealthy, you're not going to be getting fat. You're going to actually get, probably be getting skinny. Or you might get puffy, but you're, you're not going to be well. And so, 
the fact that they have the same word for these two different meanings. One is an actual physical liver you can hold in your hand and it's a physical object. And the other is this idea of fatten or enrich. And that's why they say, uh, honor thy father and thy mother. That word honor is the word liver. And, uh, and the word kidney, when you give the kidney to the Levite. It is the word for reins of control. So you're, you're not giving the kidney of your sacrifice. You're giving the reins of control of your sacrifice to the Levites. And just as the in some languages, the, the words for money had to do with something that was considered commonly of value in that community, in that lifestyle. Sheep were considered of value. So when you're, you're giving... They talk about giving, they talk about giving sheep because at first they were only shepherds. And that was where all the value, you, you had ten sheep, you were so wealthy. If you had a hundred sheep, you were so much more wealthy. So sheep represented wealth in idea, in concept, as well as in reality. And so this affects the language as well. And when they're trying to give you, a, you know, a, you go back to... Uh, I don't know if it's the life of Brian or whatever it was, but or the the Holy Grail or whatever. One of the uh, John Cleese's deals where uh, these guys are standing way off, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, and they hear Jesus say the part where he says, "Blessed are the peacemakers," and they they can't quite hear, and it sounded like he said, "Blessed are the cheesemakers." And he says, what, what does that mean? I don't get what that means. And then, of course, somebody standing by, I believe it was John Cleese, is going to explain it. And so he's, he begins to explain it. You think he's going to explain He's not saying cheesemakers. He's saying peacemakers. But no, he says, he doesn't mean cheesemakers. He means the manufacturers of all dairy products. And so you realize that, well, the first guy got it wrong because he didn't hear it right. The second guy got it wrong because he's an idiot. And this is what we do when we go about trying to figure out the sacred scriptures. You, Sacred scriptures have been inspired by the spiritual sacredness of the creator of God. Wherever you find those. And the Bible may not be the only sacred scriptures. There may be a lot of others. You know, obviously we're His Holy Church, so we're we're going to focus on the Bible. But we're going to take a look at it from a spiritual point of view because I don't believe you can understand the revelations of the Bible without personal revelation yourself. There is so much distortion and lies and twistings out there that you cannot understand the Bible without divine revelation. People say it interprets itself. Well, no, language is such a big part of interpreting what you're reading. And then knowing the history of the time and what, what they were talking If you didn't know who Caesar was, if you didn't know he was the emperor of Rome, and they talk, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, maybe you think they're talking about uh, some guy down the street who runs a pizza parlor. I mean... You have to have peripheral knowledge, knowledge of the time, uh, knowledge of the error, knowledge of the language, in order to read the Bible and understand what the authors were meaning. And I believe that you have to have knowledge of the Holy Spirit in order to understand that. And there's a great many people out there preaching what they believe is the gospel, 
and they don't have the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, and so they twist and they and they they turn peacemakers into cheesemakers, then cheesemakers into the manufacture of all dairy products. I mean, they get so far away from the simplicity of the gospel that, and, and there are people out there actually saying that the that Paul preached a different gospel than Christ, a different gospel than the apostles, even though the apostles talk about, you know, Peter anyway, talks about Paul being one of the brethren, and he's going to talk to you about things that are difficult to understand. He knew what Paul was saying. Yeah, and there was we see the adjustment in their own thinking as they begin to re-examine in prayer, seeking that divine revelation which we will probably get to in either the end of this show or the next show, is talking about what divine will is. How do you know what the divine will is? Just read the Bible. Lots of people read the Bible and they come up with different conclusions. So, And some of them are very smart people. But it's not given unto them to know what is written there, what is really being said there. Because they don't have Christ in their heart that anointing of the Father in their heart, that divine inspiration. That's what Jesus says he's going to build his church on. Not Peter himself, but what made Peter, what Simon, what made Simon a Peter, a rock. He knew this not because flesh and blood had revealed it to him. Well, if it's not flesh and blood who's revealed it to you, who did reveal it to you? Spirit. Divine revelation. He says, upon that divine revelation, I will build my church. So I'm going to talk to you about a lot of facts, a lot of information, a lot of things you're not going to hear anywhere else. But I'm not trying to establish what I say as an authority in your mind. I'm just giving you these facts to help you with your unbelief. Because you see the truth, some of you. See the truth. And you believe, but... Then you think, but what about all the stuff I was taught? What about all the stuff they told me? What about what my parents said and my teacher said and my pastor said? You see, they lead you to unbelief. Woe unto them. And so I have to show you that what they said is not really true because you didn't really have the definition. They didn't have the definition because they didn't know the history, because they didn't know the language, the times. And so they fed you a gospel that was twisted and turned and false and leads to destruction and damnation. And so I'm not going to teach you the gospel. God will teach you the gospel, but I'll show you the lie. I have to tear down the strongholds of the mind that have been built up by false teachers in you so that you can see the light. I have to let the light in because you can't see it because darkness covers your mind with false information. So anyway, we said in the first part of the series, we showed you how this word religion uh, was hijacked by these lexographers um, and from the time of the Constitution. Because at the time of the Constitution, the definition of the word religion was much different than it is today. Today, it's a set of beliefs. A hundred years ago, it was an outward act that expressed your belief in God or gods. And the definition today, it's a set of beliefs 
concerning a superhuman agent or agencies. And they don't even mention the word God. In the definition, not nowhere in the definition. This is a definition of religion. They don't even mention God. And they say the idea of a moral code, it may be a part of religion, but it doesn't have to have even a moral code. That's the modern definition. But a hundred years ago, it was an outward act by which you showed that you believed in a God or gods. But you go back a hundred years before that, and the definition of religion at the time of the writing of the Constitution of the United States, primary definition is the performance of our duty to God and our fellow man. So, that's much different. You know, when you go to church and you sing and you praise and you wave your hands in the air, how are you performing the duty to God and your fellow men? You call that a religious service, but it's not performing a duty to God or your fellow men. So it, And it's not really service to anybody, but yet it's become a religious service because religious doesn't mean the performance of your duty to God and your fellow men anymore. It just means what you think. As a matter of fact, you can save yourself by thinking a thought. You think Jesus has saved you. You think that Jesus is God and that that there's a trinity or whatever it is that your religious group is telling you to think. And you're saved. They'll say to you, you're saved now. Because you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. You don't know who he is or what he said or what he thought your duty of to the Father, to the Creator, was. And your duty to your fellow man was. You don't even know what that is. don't even know what that looks like. You don't know how to perform that without using a gun or a spear or a sword. And yet you think you believe in Jesus. And you think you're saved because they gave you a set of beliefs. And they said that's what religion is, a set of beliefs. No, religion is doing. And that's why Jesus said, not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who doeth the will of the Father. Not those who say they accept me as their personal Savior, but those who doeth the will of the Father. Do you earn your salvation by your works where God owes you? No. You still, is by grace. But this is how you know whether or not you've really accepted Jesus, by your works. This is how you know them, by their works. They tell you this. I'm just pointing out what they're saying, but a lot of your churches are missing this. And they're missing the aspects of what Jesus said. What is the will of the Father? Isn't the will of the Father to not covet your neighbor's goods? Yes, it is. That's the will of the Father. Right reason tells us that. And there's a reason why I use the phrase right reason. We'll get to that later. There's several elements in the First Amendment where we find the word religion. So what is the First Amendment? First Amendment to the Constitution 200 years ago when the word religion meant something different. Do you know what the definition of, of that religion was back then? It was your duty. What you do in performance of your duty. Congress says, or, or, or the Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. 
or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Now, I've never seen a successful petitioning of the government for redress of grievances. Mostly I see people giving government more and more power because they ask the government to do what they should be doing for themselves. And, and that brings about something called devolution, which we will get to later. So this respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, and religion was the performance of your duty to your fellow man. So they can't make any laws that make you perform your duty to your fellow man. And what what would that duty be? I mean, if it, clearly Jesus talks about the good Samaritan who helps out somebody in need. Clearly the Bible is talking about helping out widows and orphans and needy of your society. Clearly that was done through charity. You 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 made an offering to help out somebody, taking care of your parents, honor thy father and thy mother, fatten, you know, liver thy father and thy mother like we talked about that's the word there do you see honor is the word liver which means also to fatten to enrich thy father and thy mother because the father and thy mother is the head of thy household even when you go out and get married who do you ask permission to get married from your father and then he gives you permission in a frank marriage you go get married now you're husband and wife but your father is still your father he can't rule over your husband and wife relationship but if something were to happen you would go back to your father and say I have a need and your father would talk to your brothers and, and the rest of the family and say they they have a need here can we help them out my son is sick my son is killed in war we have to help his widow we have to help his children and the family would do that but if the family had broken down so much that it couldn't do it then you have to go to the community who is peaceably assembling. What does it mean to peaceably assemble? That means to assemble in peace. Like the righteous king of peace, Melchizedek, who helped out, fed, brought bread and wine, and helped those that were hungry and needy. And where did he get this bread and wine? It was given to him. People tithed to him. They chose to give to him so that he would have the means by which to help out the needy of his society. And who did he help out? He helped out men like Abraham. Because he saw men like Abraham helping others, going to the aid of others, defending justice and righteousness for others, not just for himself. And so Melchizedek came and blessed him with his gifts. You think that when you go give money to a food shelter or, or, you know, a food kitchen or something like that, you say, I am giving to the needy. And I, I am being charitable. No, you're not. Not necessarily. You may be, but maybe you're not. We had an incident just the other day, two days ago. We were in, in a town not too far from here. Well, a hundred miles from here. That's not too far in this country. There are that's the closest big town, <laughs> 100 miles. And uh, we were parked trying to get a hold of people about purchasing a hay rake. 
and, and a water tank for water and roads to prepare for the Burning Bush Festival. <laughs> and we got the hay rank, but we didn't get the tank. But we did experiments yesterday with a, a, another tank that we had. We just need to get more capacity, and we've got a plan for that. But we saw a man laying under a, the shade of a tree with his dog reading a book. And he was just sitting nearby, and we were making our calls and figuring out what we were going to do. And uh, all of a sudden, during this period, he got up and walked over to one of these homeless guys you always see on the corner, at that particular corner, waiting for people who come out to the traffic, and they stop for a second. And and some people give that poor homeless guy money, and he stands there looking homeless and dejected and little bit tattered clothes, and sometimes with a sign, I'm a vet, help me out, uh, I'm camping, I need, and, but it would be different people there at different times. Well, this guy who came up with his dog, he was the different person. He took over, and the guy who had been standing there went over to another tree and sat in the shade in some lawn chairs with some other guys. They're actually taking shifts, one guy at a time. And now it was this guy who had been laying in the shade of the tree reading a book. Now it's his time to look dejected and homeless. And I see people stop there and hand them money. I'm helping the poor. Who are these guys who take shifts? Who actually have, oh, it's my hour to be here at the corner begging money. And then another, and they meet and they divvy up what they get supposedly. That's what I'm told. And I've seen, that I have friends who have also seen this where they, when they're done, they go and get in nice cars and drive away. It's a costume. They're conning you out of your money. They have designated corners and they have hours that they are supposed to be there and take over for the next guy. They're working this, you guys, while they're probably, don't have evidence of this, but I have, reasonable suspicion we'd like to investigate it they're probably working the system too maybe they're SSI is that what they call uh, they, on permanent disability or whatever they're already getting a check and getting food stamps this is just how they get extra cash and it would be too boring to sit there all day you know 10 hours a day and so they have different guys that come there I tell you when you give them ten bucks, you are not giving to the poor. And there is no reward in heaven for what you're doing. You are irresponsibly giving to people who are the slothful of society. You need to be wiser in your charity. In your religion. In the way in which you take care of the needy and fulfill your obligation to your fellow man. Because you're not fulfilling that obligation to your fellow men. The people who really need help, they're not on that street corner. They're, they're not taking turns. They, they don't have a schedule that they've worked out. They really need help. And you don't even know who they are because your ministers are more interested in their big screen TV and, and building their congregation and playing religion than doing real religion. Instead, they have led you into devolution. There's that word again. Do you know what that means, devolution? We were playing with another word uh, last week that uh, 
that I, I like so much, and for some reason it's escaping me right now. <laughs> but, uh, uh, what is it again? Oh, pignoration. There it is. I was, I was getting the wrong letter and I couldn't get the word, but pignoration, yeah. That was our, our word for last week, and you'll, you'll have to go back in the archives and, and listen to the other shows to find out what that means. We're going to go to a break in a minute, but when we come back, we're going to talk about what divine will is, what divine law is, and what the early Americans were talking about when they talked about it and when they talked about religion, and, and see that what you think religion is today is not what religion was yesterday. And not at the time of Christ. And we'll be back to Keys of the Kingdom and look at that. And devolution. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Now, when you, if you went to look up the word definition for the word def, devolution, which we're talking about, which really is what the book Covenants of the, of the Gods is really about, although it never uses that word. Because there's lots of other words that you could use as well. But I, I like the word devolution, uh, just like I like the word pignoration. Pignoration sounds like pig, P-I-G, narration. But it doesn't have anything to do with a pig. It has to do with a promise. It has to do with a pledge. It has to do with an oath, which are all words that are similar in nature, that are expressing the same concept. And eventually in the series, we're going to get around and show you how this is what Jesus was talking about. This is why he says, uh, and James says, but all else, stop the taking of oaths. Stop the taking of these pledges. Stop creating these binding agreements. What agreements should you have with unbelievers? Unbelievers in what? Unbelievers in peace. They don't believe in peaceably assembly. You think that a democracy is a peaceful assembly? A democracy is not a peaceful assembly. A democracy is where 51% of the people can take away the rights of the other 49. Because they're a democracy. They are ruled by the mob. Rather than, you know, what was the line from uh, the movie Patriot? Why do I want to trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? You know, that's democracy. And that's, of course, why democracy was so unpopular amongst early Americans. It was so unpopular even until 1927 that it was, it was referred to as a bad form of government in, in, your military training manuals in 1927. But by 1945, it became a good form of government that you should die for. How did it do that? Somebody just changed the definition. They, they said, well, it doesn't mean that anymore. Now it means this. This is a powerful, powerful ability that you have given somebody else because you have not taken the time to be diligent in your studies. You believed what you were told, like a child being told about Santa. Learn from that lesson. Don't be deceived. Here, I'll give you a bunch of definitions of devolution. One is, if you uh, go to the London Sonoma Educational Essay uh, in the glossary, it talks about 
devolution being a reversal of evolution. A return to past forms. Devolution. There's actually scientists that are, you know, most of your cows actually come from a wild bovine that lived in northern Germany at one time. And it was an impressive muscular creature, horned and, and, you know, rather dangerous probably at that time because it was wild. I mean, it would attack wolves and survive in, in difficult times. And it did so more by its ability to destroy its opponent. Uh, and fend off the dangers, you know, of a ravenous doggy dog uh, environment of the North Woods. They're actually in the process of trying to get back, because they're all extinct. They're trying to get back to that creature by crossbreeding existing animals to bring out the characteristics of that original one. They'll find. You know, they'll breed up a whole herd and they'll see, okay, this one shows some of the characteristics of that past breed of bovine. And so they'll take that one to a selection or herd process. And they call the ones that look domestic. See, for years they called the ones that were wild and, and ferocious and, and they, until they ended up with a Holstein dairy cow. <laughs> And that's selective breeding because of this combination in genetics. Well, they've been trying to breed it back to bring back that originally Bullocks that was this wild cow that looks like something, you know, out of Spartacus. I mean, they're a very uh, impressive animal, but they're not a domestic cow. But anyway, um, so that's one definition. Reversal of evolution. Go back to the way something else, the way it existed before. Okay, another uh, term is continuing the process of degeneration or breaking down in contrast to evolution. So now that's a little different. They're saying it's in contrast to evolution. They're breaking down or degenerating. Well, in the case of producing the bullocks, they're producing a very impressive animal. It's just not a domesticated animal. It's it's more. It, it probably still has some of the domestic characteristics because it is still probably in a pen. They don't have it out there fighting wolves off, and so it's not going to turn on those ancient DNA genetics that made it what it really was. But it's starting to look more like the ones that they used to exist. But here, this definition says it's actually a degeneration in contrast to evolution, which is supposedly an improvement, if evolution was really true. You know, evolution is not, you're not really evolving by taking dogs and breeding dogs to, and saving all the fastest, fastest, fastest dogs until you have a dog that can really run fast. It's not evolution, as they are insinuating, where you, you know, a dog becomes a cat, or a cat becomes a bird, or, you know, whatever. That's, you're changing whole species, rather than developing. And, of course, that's really what Darwin talked about mostly at the beginning. This idea of of evolution was that, because of environment, you know, animals would change. 
and that this lizard over here is related to this one over here, but this one's real small because of diet, because of where it lived. They survived better if they were smaller. And this one over here survived better because it put on fat or whatever because it had a different environment. And that that's real. That's not really evolution of species to species. It's still the same species. It's just certain traits are turned on. Anyway, back to another devolution is the delegation of authority and duties in the later 20th century, the movement to decentralize governmental power in Scotland and Wales in the UK. A bill for the creation of the Scottish Welsh Assembly was introduced in, in 1976 and rejected by the referendums in Scotland and Wales in 1979 in the labor movement. Well, that devolution... That word was used way later, and it's actually, it's an idea of decentralizing power, which is kind of interesting because most of what you see in history of devolution is the centralization of power. But they're actually using devolution to talk about decentralizing power, to go back to where there was a less central government. So, it's not that that word is wrongly used there, it's used differently. It shows you that depending on when and where and who is using a word, it may have a different definition. Another definition of devolution is the delegation of powers to, a, uh, to other parliamentary bodies within the UK, specifically the Scottish Parliament or the Welsh and the Northern Ireland Assemblies, which could be a decentralization or it could be a centralization of power if the, the the source of that delegation is, say, the people. And this is the important aspect of that word. If, if the king, who has supposedly all the power, is delegating power to these other assemblies, or if, uh, you know, the parliament of the UK is delegating some of its power and saying, now the Scottish parliament and the Welsh parliaments will take care of it, they're decentralizing. But like I said, most of the time that word is used in the centralization of power. But So where does power come from in government? It comes from the people because the people were created by God and delegated certain powers by God. And whether you believe in God or not, power still comes from the people. They create the nations. They create the governments. They give power to governments. Governments did not create people. People created people before governments existed. So all power comes from the people. And if they delegate their personal power to the government, then they have centralized power. And by definition, that is devolution. But there are more definitions to the word devolution. And one of them is as a noun in illegalexplanation.com. Uh, the definition of devolution is through the automatic operation of law a transfer of title to real property now the interesting word there is automatic operation of law the transfer of title to real property automatic you do something automatically power is transferred you don't have to decide to transfer the power you just do this power is automatically transferred 
Second definition in the same location is the transfer from one person or government to another of rights, powers, or uh, public or private office. Transfer of one person to or a government to another of rights. Now, since all rights begin in the individual, the office of man. Now, let's make that. Now, that's, people don't like office. Office is a person. But, and, and we'll see later in some definitions of natural liberty, that the office of man, that's what you are. Man, mankind, whether woman or man, that office has powers granted to it by its creator. And a man can take the powers of those office and delegate it to another. But if he does certain things, it can automatically be delegated to another and that's called devolution. In uh, ecclesiastical law, uh, devolution is defined. And... Uh, you know, we have this in the article that will, will be associated with this, these recordings. One of which has already gone out. The news of views will be published shortly. And then a second one that's still in process is devolution. The transfer or forfeiture, that's that automatic word, of a right and power which a person, we're all persons, we're either members of society or members of a corporate society and and people don't want to be a person because a person is a member but by being alive you are a member of mankind so that would make you a person in that sense and that's why I use that word office of mankind that's that's a good place to be that's a good office but you can forfeit your rights automatically out of that if you do certain things or fail to do certain things Anyway, of a right or power which a person has to another on account of some act or negligence of the person who is vested with such right or power. For example, when a person has a right of preceptation. Now, there's a word that's really hard to find the definition of preceptation. P-R-E-S-E-P-T-A-T-I-O-N. Uh, you can find some medical definitions of it, but... Here it is, found in Bovier's, and you can't find the definition of that word today anywhere. It's like wiped off the face of the earth. But anyway, a little bit of the context will help us understand it. And he does not present as a right of preceptation, but he does not present within the time prescribed. The right devolves on his next immediate superior. Now, that in the operation of that is the bondage which you are now suffering under. The loss of freedom that you are now experiencing is all based on this idea of devolution. And the remedy is in preceptation, which you cannot find the definition of anywhere. <laughs> if somebody finds a good definition, send me the source of that word. Because I think that's interesting that since a word found in Bovier's you can't find a definition of. Um, but anyway, um, 
the transfer or forfeiture of a right and power which a person has to another. The power you have to another. The right and power. Power is the power of choice. The right of choice. So we've talked about the word excusia in the book Higher Liberty, which I recommend everybody read uh, free online on our website. Let every man remain subject to the higher power, higher right, higher liberty of choice. You have a right to choose. The Good Samaritan had a right to choose to help that man. If he failed to do it, it would fall to the next. And it would fall to the next. And this is what's happened. What is religion? Religion is the right and responsibility and the performance of your obligation to God and your fellow man. You have an obligation to your fellow man to care about his rights, his life, his liberty, as much as you care about your own, his welfare, as much as you care about your own. You have that responsibility, and with that responsibility comes a right. But if you fail to do it, if you fail to fulfill that right, that responsibility, that obligation, that duty to your fellow man, within a time prescribed by reason. The right devolves on his next immediate superior. Who is your superior? Who is the supreme agent of your life? It's the government. The governments you have created. They take care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society because your churches are too busy singing. You don't do it through free will offerings. You don't do it through faith, hope, and charity. You don't do it through perfect, the perfect law of liberty. So you have devolved into a state where liberty is not readily available to you. You don't have your inalienable rights. And we're going to talk about that. And explain to you why, so that you can put this together. But this process of losing your rights through failure of talking about and acting upon religion, which is the fulfillment of your obligation to your fellow man, not what you think, not a set of beliefs about trinities and, and Bhagwans and, and Buddhas and and what have you. That's not really, that's what religion has come to mean in your mind today, but they changed the definition of the religion and you helped them do it. You have devolved the definition of religion and you have devolved yourselves because you failed to meet your responsibilities to another. You did not join with Abraham. And were swept away. You did not join with Moses and remained in Egypt. You did not take back your responsibilities. Therefore, you cannot have your rights back. We're going to talk about the many different ways in which you can lose and do and, and neglect. You see, it says, on account of some act or negligence of the person who is vested with such right or power or responsibility. And we all have a responsibility to care about our neighbor's rights. And if we don't, we will lose our own. 
This is quantum. This is something you cannot change. You can have all the opinions about it you want, but it will not change. If you will not set your neighbor free and take back your responsibilities, you will not be free. And setting your neighbor free and forgiving your neighbor and taking back your responsibilities to yourselves and to your neighbor, not just for yourself, but for your neighbor, is essential to be a free society. And that, my friends, is what religion used to mean. Is to do that. And that's why the churches used to be the totality of the social welfare of society. They are not anymore because Congress has made laws accepting the establishment of religion like Social Security, SSI, uh, welfare, even unemployment. This is how you take on your responsibility to your fellow man. And the government does it. Not you. The government does it. You have given them the power of choice. The right and responsibility of taking care of the needy. And that is why you are not free today. Because you have devolved in a process of devolution. Away from your rights. And even though those inalienable rights still exist. They don't necessarily exist for you. Because you're, you've gone back into bondage. And we're going to show you how that process works in the next show. Because it's just going to take too much time to do it in this show. So anyway, that's a look at devolution, which I, I, I promise you that we would look at. And also, one of the ways, you know, like I said, it, this can come about through some act or negligence as an automatic forfeiture of right and power. Or it can be done by transfer. And that transfer is, is that process of pignation. Pignoration. Where you become a pignation. <laughs> uh, for as in an absolute government, the king is law. This is Thomas Paine. He says this. And we're going to talk about this again in the next show. So in free countries, the law ought to be king. And there ought to be no other. But now when I say law, what are you thinking? The law. You're thinking, you know, the statutes, you know. Don't go over 55 miles an hour. Uh, uh, pay this tax. Uh, uh, you have to send your kids to school. You have to get these shots. You know, whatever the rule is. I don't know. There's there's a million of them. You, know, you are under the law. You're under those millions of law. You're not under the laws of Moses. You're under those millions of laws that your government now creates. Moses was a government. And he created a government that required you to take back your responsibilities. And then you would remain free. When you turned over your responsibilities to the government again under Samuel, you were no longer free again. And you should be able to throw off those chains that bind you unless, of course, there is something else involved called debt. Debt brings you into bondage. And we'll expound on that. But it says, as Thomas Paine goes on to say, and this is in common sense, but lest any ill use should afterwards arise, let the crown, he's talking about crowning the law, let the crown at the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and scattered amongst the people whose right it is. 
Another way to say that, whose responsibility it is. You have a responsibility to take care of the needs of your neighbor, if they are true needs. Those guys on the street corner I talked about at the beginning of the show who take turns pretending to be the forlorn, forlorn, forlorn beggar who are probably already getting checks and money and don't need to do this, who can lay casually in the shade while you struggle to make a living and then go over and look like they're they're actually providing a service for the weak-minded. The weak-minded, they hand them five bucks, ten bucks, a buck out the window and they think, oh, I did my good deed for the day. And it alleviates their conscience. Meanwhile, they send their kids to public school at their neighbor's expense. They they take health care that somebody else is caring for their parents uh, through a bankrupt system. But they gave ten bucks to the guy in the corner who didn't need it anyway. Meanwhile, somebody who really needs it is dying somewhere with nobody with them. Because all your ministers are too busy singing in the church saying, You're saved! Because you believe in Jesus. But they're not doing the will of the Father. They don't know Him. They are workers of iniquity. And Jesus is going to tell them, Get ye from me. I know you not. So anyway, we'll go back and and look a little bit at some of this other stuff. It, in the First Amendment, because it doesn't just talk about religion, but first of all, that the restrictions on the people in this system of the First Amendment is on government, not upon the people. But the government has established religion. They just call it Social Security. And we're going to show you not only how that all works, but how you can turn around and go the other way when we come back the keys of the kingdom. Till then, God bless. Peace be upon your house. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church.
Well, welcome to Keys to the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to talk about Christianity, and we're going to talk about specifically the loss of rights, the loss of access to rights, based on your uh, devolution because you have neglected, or sometimes overtly affirmed, that you are giving power to someone else to do jobs that you should be doing. Anyway, we're talking about the First Amendment too, and the use of this word religion, which has been redefined into a set of beliefs away from what it used to be defined as, is the performance of your duty to God and your fellow men. And those duties are what I would call your responsibilities to your fellow men, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love righteousness, to love the ways of God. That's your duty. And that was what religion was. Religion was how you did that. And we explained in earlier shows that there are two religions. The religions that do that through faith, hope, and charity, and the religions that do that by force. Most people don't believe that you could have a society that operates entirely by faith, hope, and charity. But unless you have such a society that takes care of these duties by faith, hope, and charity, you will not have a society that is free. You will have a society that is bound. And the devil loves that. The adversary of God. The adversary of giving men the right to choose. Loves it. And believes that you can only have a functioning society if you force people to do what is right. You make them do what's right. You know, the rich should support the poor. But he wants to make the rich support the poor. He doesn't want to give the rich the right to choose to support the poor. The problem is if you take away the right of the rich to make that choice, you lose the right to make that choice too. And they can take away from you. If they can take away from the rich, they can take away from you. You've crossed a line, a quantum line, where now a new set of laws applies to you. A law you made, a law that you established through devolution. And now you follow the ways of the devil and you want to force your neighbor to do what is right in your own eyes. And don't trust in God. And don't trust in God's ways. And yet you tell me you believe in Jesus. No, you don't. That First Amendment was to limit the power of Congress to make a law respecting the establishment or prohibiting of the free exercise of religion, which meant the real piety in practice consisting in the performance of all known duties to God and your fellow man. And the word piety in practice is also defined in Bovies in relationship to religion as the exercise of love in obedience, in the performance of services as a duty to God and your fellow men, according to some moral code resulting from some call, divine law, or the will of God. This code of divine law or the will of God. So what is that? Now, now if I mention God and divine will, you think... Uh, oh, that's religion. I don't want anything to do with religion. But is that really religion? 
In the last show, I quoted Thomas Paine from The Common Sense, which I think we have common sense up on, uh, if you go to our outline page on hisholychurch.org, I think you can find a copy, but you can Google it. Common Sense quotes the Bible extensively, and Thomas Paine is not one of your religious figures of the early American Revolution, but yet he's quoting the Bible, because he's he wasn't so immersed in what you call religion today. He was immersed in what religion was back then. And there were times in his life where he needed the help of religion. He needed assistance, because he wasn't always well-to-do. He, he depended on other people a lot of times. But anyway, in this common sense, he says, Where, say some, is the king of America? I'll tell you, friend, he reigns above and doth not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute in Great Britain. How does God reign from above? Isn't he to write his laws upon your heart and your mind, each of us individually? There were no kings in Israel. People say, well, yeah, but look at what a fiasco that was. Well, look at the fiasco that the kings were. Your choice of having a king make the decisions for you is a rejection of God. It's very clear in the Bible. Moses was leading you back to a place where you could exercise that responsibility and not neglect, not devolve, but you could still have that choice of devolving. Neglecting your responsibilities to your fellow man in pure religion and decide to have the impure religion of forcing your neighbor to help you meet those obligations. These are the two distinctions. And it's hard for a lot of people to see because they only, they look around at churches and religion, they only see one way. They look around at government, they only see one way. Either more benefits or less benefits. People say, oh, I don't want to pay the taxes on that, so let's have less of that, less of this, less help, less help, less help. Other people who want more help. No, let's have more help, more help, more help, more help. More benefits, more benefits, more reward. So you have these two opposing ideas, but the reality is the answer is neither. The answer is to take back your responsibilities and become the social welfare system of society that actually functions by faith, hope, and charity. Will it help everybody? Not in the way they want, necessarily. You know, the poor says, give me, give me, give me. Well, I, 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 I've seen children who want to say, give me, give me, give me. I don't give them everything they want. I want that candy. And you can't have that. It'll spoil your appetite. I want free food. No, you can't have that. It'll, it'll destroy your work ethic. So anyway, Thomas Paine is talking about God ruling where and how here how to you individually he went on to say that we may not appear to be defective even in earthly honors let a day be solemnly set apart for proclaiming the charter let it be brought forth placed on divine law this is the only reason I'm quoting this Divine law, the word of God. So he's referring to the word of God. I can almost believe that that's the Bible he's talking about. Although it may not be. Divine law. Let a crown be placed there upon by which the world may know 
so far as we approve of monarchy, that in America the law is king. Again, well, if he's talking about the law being king and divine law and the word of God, is the Bible the law? What's the law? What's he talking about? Is he talking about the U.S. codes? They didn't exist yet. He's talking about statutes that were hardly not any around. What's he talking when he says law? And divine law. Placed on divine law, the word of God. What law is king? Thomas Paine wrote in uh, this natural right in his highly influential work, uh, The Rights of Man, which he wrote a little bit later. I think it was 1779. Anyway, uh, the law he's talking about. Law governs men and reason the law. That, that's a maxim. But the law he's talking about is the law of nature and nature's law. It, it's defined as divine will. The law of nature is defined as divine will or the dictate of right reason, showing the moral deformity of moral or moral necessity that there is in any act according to the suitableness or unsuitableness to a reasonable nature, sometimes used of the law of human reason. In contradistinction to the revealed law and sometimes of both. In contradistinction to positive law. So, natural law can actually include revealed law. But both are in contradiction or contradistinction to the positive law. Sometimes they're actually in contradiction to the positive law. But, Positive law. What What is positive? Positive law is what you establish. It's those U.S. codes. For the most part, I mean, the U.S. codes are positive law. And they're established by agreements, by contract. People sit down and agree. Now, Congress can't necessarily agree on your behalf at, in the beginning. So, I mean, it's actually you have to show some sign of agreement with them. And the way you do that is pledges, which brings us back to pignoration. Anyway, Thomas Paine was clear that rights cannot be granted by any charter, instrument of... Because uh, charters are instruments of injustice. They're not granted, granted by legislatures or Congress. Because this would legally imply that they can also be revoked as mere privileges. So if you have a right granted to you by the legislature or by Congress, that's not a right. That's a privilege. It was something they granted. When you have a right granted by God, then that's that's a right. T- uh, Payne also clarified his opinion in this rights of man concerning the natural law and divine will that we must seek it as individuals. He said, quote, The fact, therefore, must be that the individuals themselves, each in his own personal and sovereign right, entered into a contract with each other to produce a government. And this is the only mode in which the governments have a right to arise, the only principle on which they have a right to exist. When we the people first gathered together and signed the Constitution, we the people consisted of those names at the bottom of the sheet. 
of paper we call the Constitution. They had no power to sign on your behalf. You had not delegated them the power. Even the states that sent them as delegates from the individual states had not given them the power to create a new document. That's why the states had to vote on it. They had to decide, are we going to go along with this new document? And and many of them decided. But they had already agreed that they would not have any changes to the original Articles of Confederation without unanimous agreement, and they didn't get that, and they implemented the Constitution anyway, which was a violation of law by contract. But it's been so long, nobody's complained, so they got what they got. But where did the people enter in? Because the people didn't vote on it. And they had never, since the states were republics, they had not given the power to the states to create the, the United States on their behalf. I mean, they could create the United States, but what did it have to do with the people? Nothing. They weren't a party to it. And we explain this in Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions. That, and we show you that the Supreme Court explains it, too. I'm not making this up. You were not a party to the Constitution as an American. You were not we the people. If you're not a party to it, you're not we the people. You didn't sign it. You didn't agree to it. You didn't vote for it. You're not a party to it. Your rights don't come from it. It was to restrict Congress. You were to practice religion. You were to establish religion. You were to establish a way in which to fulfill your duty to your fellow man on an individual office base, the office of mankind. But you didn't do that. No, you did it for a while. But you got farther and farther away from it. You said, oh, let the government do that. And while you had a right to present, you failed to do it. You failed to show up. You failed to take care of one another. And the duty fell to the government. And with the duty came the right to decide for you on your behalf. Because you, by neglect, forfeited a right automatically. And that's called devolution. And that's, it takes more than an hour to lead up to this. So you have to go back and listen to the first show in order to to follow this thinking maybe unless of course you are experiencing divine revelation and you're just kind of putting it together that's the thing is when we try to explain these things you have to straighten out this thing and you have to straighten out that thing and you have to straighten out this thing and that's called making the way straight starting to clarify what Christ was really talking about what John the Baptist was really talking about what the early church was really doing. Those that had shared with those that didn't have enough. Because they didn't go to Rome for their benefits, for their free bread. They went to each other and they had ministers to rightly divide the bread from house to house. And they had the bread to divide because men were listening to God in their hearts and their minds and contributing. And they were living by faith, not by force. Modern Christians live by force. They give God lip service in their churches, but they don't actually take care of the needy. They pray to men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. This is the way in which they take care of their religion, their duty and obligation to their fellow man. And what happens is the state becomes their God. 
the state becomes their father. The state has their rights and responsibilities, and they have none or little. And that is devolution. That is a pignoration of the nation. And you are brought back into bondage. And it is worse with you today than it was in the days of Egypt. In the days of Egypt, thousands of children were aborted because of the economic strain of working under the Pharaoh. That was Pharaoh instead of Moses. Thousands of children were aborted, cast out. The fetuses, that's what it says in the New Testament. Brephos, the fetuses were cast out. But today, millions are cast out. And mostly because of economic difficulties, uh, a society built on selfishness, of neglect, and the forfeiture of rights. You want your rights back. You have to talk about religion. Real religion. Not what's posing as religion today. So all you guys out there who want your rights back, you better talk about real religion. Your responsibilities to your fellow man. Because that's how nations are bound together. Because you come there for each other to take care of the needs of your society. Help one another out. Tornadoes, floods, earthquakes. You need to come together. It said those who had funds, wealth, shared with those that didn't have enough. They chose to in a way that strengthened the poor. And they stayed together. It says that. And and talking about how Christianity worked, they stayed together. When you gather, you gather to figure out how you can help one another. You say, no one in my gathering needs help, so I get to go home and never give anything. No. You give, you cast your bread upon the waters in hopes to help those men who have not yet heard the word of liberty preached by Christ. That's what Christ was showing you. If you do these things, you will follow the straight way towards the kingdom of God, the right to be ruled by God instead of be ruled by other men. The church should have known for years that it was not to exercise authority one over the other because Jesus said you were not to do that. But the church did that. And then you said, oh, let's reform the church. Let's be Protestants. Let's overthrow that church because it is wicked. And it was. But you did not establish. Actually, in many cases, you did establish a system whereby you helped one another. When the Baptists were escaping the persecution or the others... Uh, Waldensians or whatever were escaping the persecution you don't think they took care of one another they did it's only you the modern slothful Christian who are not taking care of one another and have left that job to a government and therefore have abandoned their rights so anyway we need to talk about how that abandoning takes place and what, what all goes on when you abandon those rights and responsibilities and how you are restricted and how you 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 lose those rights and cannot go back while the constitution is both a contract and an agreement the people were not a party to it and like i said read contracts covenants and constitutions and and begin to understand that thomas paine when he was talking about this 
crowning the law that he was talking about, crowning the law of nature, nature's God. You know, Lewis Carroll warned us that contemptuous men who seek power or first seek power to change the meaning of words. And when he wrote in Alice, uh, I think it was in The Looking Glass, he wrote of Humpty Dumpty. He said, when I use the word Humpty Dumpty said in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean. Neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make a word mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master. That is all. You see, that's how they get control of you. They, they have, you have a contempt, uh, many of you who are look, seeking freedom have a contempt of religion. And what you are really contemptuous of is the slothful, avaristic, self-indulgent, false apostate church feigning a belief in Jesus Christ, but not actually doing what he said. Jesus knew that the people could not be free unless they took back their responsibilities. There was no point in setting them free of establishing the kingdom. And he did establish the kingdom. This is the king of the Jews. There is a, it says that three times on his cross. And when that cross was nailed, uh, that sign was nailed to the cross. Official document of Rome. Jesus Christ is king. His ambassadors, his apostles could now form a government. In free assembly. And it was free assembly because Jesus said, You are not to exercise authority one over the other, but yet you still had the responsibility of feeding his sheep, taking care of them, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. That What was the prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need if we cannot produce it ourselves. Help us out when we need help. How did they do that? The early church did it through faith, hope, and charity. You don't do it through faith, hope, and charity in your churches today. You do it through the government. Because you have devolved from what the church was to what the church should not be. A system of thinking they're saved rather than being the salvation not only of each other but of the world. That is what Christ came to do is to save you by showing you the way. But you are not going the way. You are going a way that is in opposition to Christ. You are following the Antichrist. And I know many of you have just been fooled. And that's what we were told, that there would be a strong delusion. And we need to repent of that and turn around. And so understanding words like religion, but there's a lot of other words that have been changed over the years. The word republic. You think a republic is an indirect democracy. No. It is the antithesis of democracy. In a republic, you are free from things public. Libra res publica. And we write about that in Higher Liberty. And, and we have articles up on it. Samuel Adams once wrote, How strangely will the tools of a tyrant pervert the plain meaning of words. He understood that. They would change the plain meaning of words so that you think religion is what you think instead of how you take care of one another. And if you won't take care of one another, you will not be free. Augustus Caesar even 
was sensible that mankind is governed by names. Nor was he deceived in his expectations that the senator and the people would submit to slavery, provided they were respectfully assured that they still enjoyed their ancient freedoms. But they did not. Augustus Caesar, the the rise of Octavius was the end of the republic. People were no longer free from things public, but people were now taking free bread and and, and benefits of society, including health care. They eventually had universal health care in Rome. But they were eventually totally, 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 totally bankrupt. And things began to all fall apart. You know, Mark Twain once said, it is easier to fool some one than to convince them that they have been fooled. And the religionist is one of the hardest to convince that he is not even practicing religion. Because he says, but I believe in a set of beliefs. So I must be practicing religion. But religion wasn't a set of beliefs. Pure religion was the taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society, unspotted by the, unspotted by the world. Unspotted by the world, the word world there meant constitutional order or system of government because Christians were taking care of the needy through faith, hope, and charity. Christians today do not take care of the needy through faith, hope, and charity. They don't even take care of their own church, much less the stranger in their midst. You have a lot of repenting to do. A lot and a lot of repenting. And it's not the lexiographer's uh, fault. And it's not the tyrant's fault. It's our fault. Because we've been slothful in the ways of Christ. In the ways of John the Baptist. We need to repent. We need to turn around. We need to go the other way. We need to change our mind. We need to turn back our thinking to what it was at the time of John and Jesus. That's why their first... Piece of advice, wisdom, first step towards the kingdom is to repent. Change your ways. And and like I said, we, we have lots of different ways we can show you how to do this. You know, your charitable institutions. You know, you open up a food kitchen. You don't just give to... You know, I always tell the story, and I, I should repeat it because we always have new listeners... You know, I, I was watching an interview of some people at, at a Thanksgiving deal where they're serving like a four or five course meal to uh, needy people at Thanksgiving time. And they, the people working in the kitchen, they'd all shown up like at 2 and 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. And it was hot in that kitchen. You could see they were working hard. Everybody in that kitchen in the video was skinny. Everybody was skinny was working in that kitchen. Then they went out and were interviewing the people in line and they were complaining and whining that they were waiting so long because they had to feed the people in shifts. They only had so many seats. So you know, one group would come in and eat and then the next group would come in as they were, uh, the, other, the first group were finishing up. And they were clearing off the tables. But everybody in that line outside waiting for their free food was fat. Fat and overweight. Uh, and, and, of course, the people they were talking to were whining. Something wrong with that picture. You know, it used to be that the hungry were skinny. <laughs> and, 
and it's not that way anymore. The, the needy were actually needy needy, not whiny needy. And so we need to start our own charitable organizations, but we need to be giving the poor what they need is incentive to work, incentive to contribute to society in some way or shape. Some people can't work as hard as others, and that's why they need help. But they can do something. And so, therefore, you have to gear your charitable institutions where there's accountability, accountability for what is being given and who is receiving and how they're receiving and what they are doing to make them the worthy poor, the ones that should be helped. Not Otherwise, you are helping them be slothful. And if you're doing that, if you're helping the slothful be more slothful, you are sinning with your charity. Your charity is a sin. We'll talk to you more about this when we return to the Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys to the Kingdom. We're talking about change. We're talking about changing your thinking, changing your mind, turning back, going back to the way God intended it originally. That changing is called repentance. What's happened is that people have changed the meaning of words so that you do not see that there is need of repentance. You do not know that there is another way. Like the word gods, it's changed. Gods meant ruling judges. It's meant the men who had the right to decide what was good and evil, and the men who had the right to put you in jail or fine you. The words that we see translated in God every day, in just your concordance, it says that that was used in reference to magistrates. Both the Old and New Testament, it was used in reference to judges, magistrates. These are the gods many. And there are God's many because you have taken pledges and because you have applied for benefits and because you have neglected your responsibility to take care of the needy of the world. We'd like to start a number of projects to take care of the needy the way in which Christ would do it. A way that casts up and which a way which edifies the poor so that they are poor no longer. But we need your help to do it. You have to decide to help. God has to move on your heart to do it. Otherwise, you will remain subject to the God's many. Unless you take back your responsibilities, you will remain subject. Another word they change is the word world. Like I said, it means constitutional order or system of government. I didn't make that up. That's a definition right out of the concordance. When you see that word that is translated world, then my kingdom's not of this world. That uh, pure religion is unspotted by the world. That word is constitutional order or system of government. What kind of government? Is it a republic where you're free from things publicly but res publica? No. It's a thing. It's a government in which you are subject to things public. Therefore, it is not a republic. It could be a democracy, a monarchy. It could be a totalitarian dictatorship under which you have gone through your sloth and agreement. There's dozens of other common words that they have changed throughout 
history and presently mean something different than they did 100 or 200 years ago. And you don't know about them. You don't understand those words. Because you have been deceived. Uh, another quote I have here is, it says, Neither can any state acquire such an authority over other states in virtue of any compacts or sessions. This is a case in which compacts are not binding. See, a lot of people want to say that these contacts are not binding. These contracts are not binding. These contractions of society are not binding. They say civil liberty is in this respect. I'm actually quoting from Richard Price, his observations on the nature of civil liberties in 1776. Uh, but it's, it's printed by um, Duke University Press. But anyway, civil liberty is in this respect on the same footing as religious liberty. But what religious liberty is that? <laughs> the liberty to take the responsibility for your fellow man? Or the one where you think a thought? As no people can lawfully surrender their religious liberty by giving up their right of judging for themselves in religion or by allowing any human being to prescribe to them what what faith they shall embrace. Well, faith? What do you believe in? Do you believe in the devil? That's faith? Do you believe in the devolution? Do you believe in the right of someone else to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare? If that's what you believe in, that's your religion. And of course, that is the religion of most people who claim Christ, but Christ claimed just the opposite, so therefore they are not claiming the real Christ. Therefore, they are not really faithful. Therefore, they are not really saved. And surely they will die. They will go under condemnation and are under it now. And that is why they feel this loss of freedom, is because they do not practice pure religion. They practice something posing as religion. As no people can lawfully surrender their religious liberty by giving up their right of judging themselves in religion or by allowing any human being to prescribe to them what faith they shall embrace or what mode of worship they shall practice, so neither can any civil society lawfully surrender their civil liberties by giving up any extraneous jurisdiction their power of legislating for themselves and disposing of their property. You know, there's a there's a line, is it not lawful to do with mine own what I will? The person writing this, Richard Price, doesn't understand what religion meant at the time the Constitution was written. And so therefore, what he is embracing today in this definition is inaccurate. He He's thinking, and that's just showing you the power of the words. Although, I know some of you probably didn't follow that. If you go back and read Samuel, 1 Samuel 22, 2, and everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, and he became captain over them, and there were with him 400 men. This was David when he was hiding in the cave. 
And men began to support him. What did they mean by distress? I mean, debt is debt. But distress is what? The the word there is a word that actually comes from a word, suk, which means constrain, press, bring into straight, straighten, oppress. And itself is defined as uh, straightness, straits, distress, stress, anguish. I always thought it was interesting. The word city is also, it means anguish. And city actually refers to civil authority, where you went under the civil law. And you went under it often by an overt contract. But then that power grew because of more and more neglect of your responsibilities and rights. But people who were bound left one estate to go and defend David. But David made mistakes. Christ was showing you the way. You need to defend one another's rights. You need to be there for one another. You need to gather together and peaceably assemble. Again, it is not peaceably assembling if you're gathering together to decide how to take away the rights of your neighbor. When you have your Congress and you gather together and say, we want a swimming pool at the local school. We want a referendum that gets more money for their teachers. We want longer hours at the school. We want better medical care. We want all these things. That is not peaceably assembling. You are assembling to make war on those who may choose not to support you. To take away their house, take away their freedom, take away their liberty, throw them in jail. Because they will not support your desires, your hunger for benefits. That's not peaceably assembling. The church is a peaceable assembly because it is assembling to live by faith, hope, and charity. And the perfect law of liberty. And unless that's why you're assembling, you're not assembling in a church. You're not peaceably assembling. And you could expect those churches to be raided. Now, you, you might expect our church to be raided someday, too, because they will come against you and persecute you. But where the real danger for you comes is when you do this well. Right now, you're floundering around. People are not really contributing. How many people are actually tithing to their local ministers to give him the means by which most of the ministers don't need it to support them, but you would give him the means by which he could begin to open these, whatever it is, shelters. You know, you could all, just getting a house in your local community, there are houses sitting vacant everywhere. And, and people would want some, we know of houses like that that are sitting vacant. And we could put people in those houses to help take care of them. But we need the network and support. We have to feed them while they're in there. Now, who would we put in there? Someone who is looking for refuge, their uh, husband beating his wife. The wife needs refuge. Maybe a wife who's uh, got a child and uh, her husband dies. And she needs, she's, she can't pay her rent and take care of her kid and she has to go on government assistance. Well, we could find him a house to live in. But we need some support in order to do that. I mean, we have such things available right now. But we don't have any flow. And someone was talking to me and they were making revelations. One of our ministers was making revelations about this idea of blood and water. And I explained to him that water 
is represented by the mem, the letter mem in the Hebrew language. And mem is the flow of charity, the flow of that water and blood is the flow of blood in your veins. And in the body of Christ, there needs to be a flow of water and blood. You need, there needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be a giving in order to set up the alternatives to a system based on force. You need to have people that are willing to start to give on a regular basis. I mean, you can't, you, you know, you don't, you don't pump a lot of blood for an hour and then don't pump any blood for an hour. You gotta pump that blood on a regular basis to provide charitable works for the needy. We have ministers now who get by on very little, need very little support. But they need means by which they can provide the services of society through faith, hope, and charity. Unless you start doing that for yourselves, you will not be free. You need to gather together and those that have share with those that don't have enough. And you need ministers that will share with them what they are given in a way that strengthens the poor so that the poor becomes a fruitful member of society and does not remain the poor or become even poorer and lazier and slothful. This is the ways of the kingdom. This is the way to straighten out your society so that it moves back towards freedom and liberty. And unless you start taking care of the needy of your society in the way that Christ would do it, you will not be free. You will remain in distress. You will remain in anguish under the powers of civil government because you leave your brother at the mercy of those altars of the civil government. You have to come. This is how you create the altars of God. You're not doing that. You're doing the contrary to that. So, anyway, we were talking about repentance. Again, repentance is turning around. Uh, there's a hundred places where you see the word repentance in the Bible. Uh, or, or a similar word that is sometimes translated as repent. But uh, in Matthew 3, 2, you see in saying, repent ye. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not coming after you die. If it's not here now at hand, you're not going to see it after you die. It's here now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The right to be ruled by God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. St. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. Or words that are translated into kingdom of heaven. But it's also kingdom of God. There's no difference. Oh, Matthew is the only one where you see kingdom of heaven. But he's talking about the same places where the other gospels are referred to it as the kingdom of God. In Matthew 4.17 he says, From the time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn around, change your ways. But you're not changing your ways, you're just going to church. And the church says you're saved, so you stop looking. Start looking. Start seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness because Jesus said so. Because He is showing you the way to freedom and liberty under God. In Matthew 11.20 we see, Then began He 
to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. And that's what's happened with you. You repent not. you got to turn around. He says, The men of Nineveh shall arise uh, in judgment with their generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a, a greater than Jonas is here, reaching to you now, and yet you do not repent. Some did. Many did not. Now I am telling you, you need to repent again. And saying the time is fulfilled. This is Mark one fifteen. The time is fulfilled. It's fulfilled. It's done. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye. And believe the gospel. And people say, oh, well, they didn't repent. They did repent. Those did. You haven't. But they did. And when Paul is writing the brethren, he's writing those that repented. He's not writing you. Unless you've repented. And you haven't repented unless you've changed your ways. Because the ways you've been going is the ways of devolution. Of neglect. Of lack of responsibility. Of lack of taking care of one another. And they went out and preached that men should repent. Mark 6.12 Luke 13.3 I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He repeats this again in Luke 13.5. Same line. In Luke 15.7 he says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. But you have need of repentance. We have all fallen. And even the very elect. This is a great deception. That you believe in religion of God. The religion of Christ. You do not. You do not even know what it is. They have not been telling you it. They have been leading you into false, fake, distorted, apostate gospels. By twisting words and the meaning of words. Likewise, I say unto you, there is a joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. One sinner that repenteth. Take heed to yourself. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And that's what we need to do. This forgiveness is very important. And and we will talk about that in another program about this debt thing. That has brought you into bondage. And bring you back to the repentance. That will set you free. And Peter said unto them repent. Now this is Peter. And be baptized every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When you got baptized. At that time. That's Acts 2.38. When you got baptized. You were cast out of the temple. Welfare system of Corbin. You couldn't collect Corbin anymore. If you were elderly and depending on you weren't going to get a dime if you got a baptism of Christ. If you were blind and you professed Christ and got baptized, you were going to be cast out. You weren't going to get any more help. They tell you this in John. This is what was going on. You get baptized and you still go to the benefactors who exercise authority one over the other. And you say you're being faithful to Christ? No. You say you're doing, you, you got the same baptism Peter was talking about? No. You got the baptism of Constantine. You didn't get the baptism of Christ. 
You're still eating at the trough of men who exercise authority. At their civil altars. You just go to church to make you feel good. Because it makes you feel so good. But repent ye therefore. And be converted. That your sin may be blotted out. When the time of refreshing shall come. From the presence of the Lord. Because if he comes back and finds you working iniquity. Forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. Forcing your neighbor to contribute to the free education of your children. To your health care. To your welfare. To the supreme agency of the governments you have created. To rule over your neighbor. To to oppress your neighbor. To bludgeon your neighbor. For your benefit. Jesus is going to say. Get ye from me ye workers of iniquity. So that's why in 8.22 of Acts it says, Repent therefore of thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. In order to do that you have to forgive the debt that you think they owe you in your entitlements and say, I will take these benefits no longer. Now if you're taking them, I understand. Repent in your heart and start turning around and start setting up the kingdom to take care of others. If you start giving so that we can put ministers in the field to provide the benefits of the needy in a way that strengthens them, the real needy, the righteous poor, the poor seeking righteousness, I can I can guarantee you that the Good Samaritan, he might have helped the guy from starvation, but the guy would have stayed skinny if... The good Samaritan find the guy wanted to go out and sin more. He wouldn't have helped them anymore. We are not to be helping the slothful be slothful. We are not to be helping the avarice be more avaristic. We are not to be helping the pignoration, pignation become more pigs. And for the swine to return to his mire. And the dog to his vomit. We're not to help them do that. We are help them on the way towards the kingdom. Not bolster the way towards Rome. But he showed first unto Damascus and to Jerusalem and throughout the coast of Judea. And then to the Gentiles that, that they should repent. Turn around. Turn to God. His works. Do the works meet for repentance. That's what we need to do. Second Corinthians 12.21 and lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Because you are not working to set up the kingdom of God, the right to be ruled by God because you are not becoming the social welfare system of the world that operates by faith, hope, and charity. Now, I know there are many charitable people out there and there are many charitable organizations that do a lot of this stuff, but we need to do it in the spirit of Christ that makes people stronger, not makes them weaker and more dependent upon these free giveaway programs. And there is a way to do that. And if you give us the means, we will show you the way. But the reason why we will not show you the way until you give us the means is because there must be a flow of blood and water. 
You must cast your bread upon the waters. Otherwise, you are not deserving of the answers. And we've given you enough hints of the deserving of the answers. But, you know, when I say give us the means, I don't mean send it all to me. Gather together. Stay together. Be together. In small groups. Networking together. Your charity begins at home. Charity begins in your local free assemblies where you gather together to set your neighbor free through faith, open charity. In peaceably assembling, not gathering together to force anybody to give, but to give of your heart. Unless you are doing that in pure religion, you will not be free. Now that you know that religion is not what you think, that religion is what you do, how you fulfill your duty to your fellow man. How do you set up a welfare system based on faith, hope, and charity? A welfare system that will make you stronger and make society stronger and bring you into account. And if you do not work, you do not get the benefits of such a society. If you will not work, if you want to remain lazy, if you want to remain slothful, if you want to remain covetous, if you want to remain immoral, we stone you with the stones of our altar. We don't hit you in the head with rocks. We cut you off from our altar. We are only interested in helping those that are seeking the kingdom. If you will do that. And and we don't require you to seek with all your heart and mind. We just need you to start turning around. If you start turning around, we will help you with your unbelief. And show you the way to the kingdom of God at hand. Until then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.